Well, in 1776, 56 men gathered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And that act, that document that they signed, changed the Western Hemisphere, the world, forever. They were committing an act of treason, stepping away from King George III, and they wanted their independence, and they desired to chart a new course and a new land. It took Thomas Jefferson just three weeks to write the Declaration of Independence, a document that many of you have probably seen if you've been to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and if you've ever been there like I have, you probably remember one thing about that document if you looked at it. It's that big name right at the bottom, right? John Hancock signed his name, larger than the others, was the first to sign it. And this declaration changed and shaped the, the world in many ways because other countries and other uh, groups began to see that there's something about independence and freedom that should be implemented in their own places. And most of us could probably quote the most famous quote from that. Let's see if I can pull this off today. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they were endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, uh, when it talked about men there, we realized it took a civil war to help that include more people than what it originally meant. And the story continues on where we try to live out the principles, hopefully, of this Declaration of Independence. Independence is a great value. And I learned that in an important way on March 13, 2000. Uh, I actually started the day at a place that most people don't want to start their day, at the Department of Motor Vehicles. And I was sitting in that dirty chair getting my license for the first time. I was declaring my independence. And everyone should have been afraid at that moment except for me, right? that feeling of getting on the road for the first time. It felt like a day of independence for me because no longer would my parents have to drop me off at school. Now I could be free in my own way to do what I needed done. Until uh, I realized, oh, you have to put gas in a car. And you have to pay for insurance. And that first accident happened, and I was ready to declare again my dependence on my parents. We've all been through that experience, haven't we? Where freedom something we long for, we look forward to. Some of our seniors in just a, a few months will be taking their steps uh, into freedom in new ways. But that freedom comes with responsibilities that we didn't know existed before stepping into that freedom. Independence is a wonderful value. And I think the early colonists were on to something wonderful when they wrote this document. In, in a way, in America, this is in our DNA, isn't it? This idea of independence and declaring that. Uh, But the reality is, over the next few weeks, what I want us to do is to lean into another kind of declaration. And it doesn't deny the first, but it does say, (laughs) we can't do this journey of faith alone, and what it takes to be a Christian is to make a declaration of dependence. And that's a dependence on God, and it's also a dependence on the family of God, the church that God has given to us, the small group that we're involved with. All of these things are people that God has placed in our lives to depend on for our journey of transformation into the image of Jesus. We need God. We can't do life well without Him. Trent said that quite well just through his actions this morning of committing his life to Christ, a a, a declaration of dependence. And it's what we commit to, and what I want to share with you over the next several weeks is about this journey we all need to go on. Let's pray as we open God's Word this morning. God, we, uh, we ask that your story of the early church and their dependence on one another would be a model, would be a, a declaration that we would step back into, that we cannot do the life of faith alone. 
So God, we declare our dependence on You again this morning. We declare our dependence on the others that You've placed in our lives who are followers of Jesus alongside us. God, help us to be an example to the world of what it looks like to do life together in a way that's meaningful. This morning, God, I pray You'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. That's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the biggest issues we face in our culture is the issue of loneliness isolation. And it's something that few of us dare admit. Because loneliness and isolation is is an issue, but it's an even bigger taboo in our culture. Because if we were to express we feel lonely and isolated, well, there's a sign of weakness in this culture of independence that we value so much. To share any kind of need is a difficult thing. Many of us are very willing to offer hope and to share with the needs of others when we find out about them. That's a great benefit the churches do. And, and I see the generosity of this church in so many ways. Just in a couple of weeks, we'll have this, this offering to give to benevolence, to care for those who have need. But what we sometimes find it harder to do is to admit our need, to come before others and say, we really need help in this season of our lives. Whether that's financial help or whether that's a need for, for some other kind of need in our lives, we find it hard in our culture to admit that. I recently read an article that I think would be interesting for you to look up later today. It's written by uh, Billy Baker. It's out of the Boston Globe. I think earlier this month even, maybe it was in uh, the month of March. But Billy was asked by uh, somebody at the Boston Globe to write a story on the isolation and loneliness of middle-aged men. And Billy was really kind of offended at first because he thought, what do they think I have to offer about this as a middle-aged man? I have all kinds of relationships. And So he was offended by the project until he began to look at his relationships and discover he has a lot to share about this. Because as much as he wanted to say that he felt like he was connected and he was in community with with others, he realized, okay, my best friend that I talk about is really just a friend from high school that I don't talk to more than four or five times a year. Not really the community that I would think about. So he listed his other friends quick to prove that he he wasn't lonely, but the reality was in a culture of busyness and a in a culture where family is king, it's amazing how relationships outside of that can be hard to come by. And so he shares very vulnerably in this article in the Boston Globe about his own journey to find his isolation, looking around at others who were finding community in specific ways. It's been meaningful to me, and it's not just middle-aged men who deal with this issue. So many of us in different segments of our culture, I think about seniors right now, it's a huge issue right now is isolation and loneliness. And the church has a part to play in changing that in our culture. Now, it's funny because we have social media. We're one of the most connected cultures globally that has ever existed, but we're one of the loneliest cultures because that hunger and that itch is not scratched through social media. Now, when we post on social media, it may look like we're connected, but all of us have had that moment, haven't we? When we thought we were in relationships that were close, and then we notice everyone in that friend group is there except us. We weren't invited. And even the look at Facebook can be this feeling of isolation, can't it? I thought I was closer and I didn't know I was. Or, or these people are way more connected. They don't need relationship as much as I do. I think we all assume that in our culture. The truth is most of us, if not all of us, desire more relationship than what we have. Now, we are too busy to figure out how to do that. That's part of what the article talks about. But a value in our lives is trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we make room for relationships that we're built to have? Uh, this isn't some social science that leads us to this idea. The Bible talks about this. Give you your Bibles this morning. Open with me, if you would, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Solomon is talking about all the things that are meaningless. And he goes through a long list of, of things, but he begins to talk about this very topic and the meaninglessness of it. This is Ecclesiastes 4, beginning in verse 7. Listen to his word. 
Again, I, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. As he's writing this, I'm imagining Solomon looking out, and maybe it's about himself. Maybe he's looking at someone else, and he realizes they've got all this wealth. They're working so hard. They're toiling and toiling, but they they have no one to share all that they've gained with. No relationship. It's, It's almost as if You've seen people like this, haven't you? That a family would only take away from the finances, right? There would only be a drain on that. And you can't work as much when you have family. So, so why not just engage more work? And, and then he looks around them and he realizes this is meaningless. Because the only enjoyment we have for the work that we do are the people that we get to enjoy our lives with. We're built for relationship. And Solomon says it's meaningless, absolutely meaningless. He continues on in verse 9 with something you may be more familiar with. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now, we've all been at a wedding before where this has been read. I think it applies well to marriage, right? This idea of two strands with God that's woven in is stronger than even two strands or one strand. Uh, obviously, but but I think it's bigger than marriage, isn't it? I mean, this is our relationships. The more we have people that are tied into our life more closely, the the more we have people who can help us up when we fall. The more we can keep warm rather than going it alone. The more, if someone's going to overtake us as an enemy, we have others that can be in the fight beside us. Solomon's trying to point out this reality. If you're alone, it doesn't matter how much you have. Relationships are all important. But you wouldn't know how important it is by looking at our culture, would you? Because we live in a culture of independence. We live in a culture that celebrates being able to take care of itself. We love helping others, but as I said earlier, it's harder to reach out and share our need for relationship or help. So what Solomon says is pity that person who doesn't have someone to walk in beside them. But in our culture, we celebrate the self-made person, don't we? We teach the value of individualism. It pervades our culture. It's the air we breathe. And you can even see this value in architecture, if you think about it this way, right? I mean, the houses that we build, the dream house that most of us would have, would have enough rooms for everyone except the married couple to have their own room in a family, right? That seems like that's almost the standard these days and the expectation. And so this private room invariably has a door, and that door in some families is allowed to be closed. In other families, the parent has to knock to go into the room. We're teaching through our culture a value of individualism just by the very architecture of our homes. And some of you are saying, well, Colin, what's wrong with that? And the point isn't to name this practice as wrong. The point is somebody growing up in a world like this, like ours, cannot help but imagine him or herself as an individual first who is identified by what he or she will be able to create on their own. And not every culture assumes this worldview. For instance, the medieval worldview saw things very differently. It was an honor-shame culture. And so in the medieval world, uh, you weren't so much what you did on your own. You were in a rank order based on if you were above or how you were connected to others. In fact, a medieval castle rarely contained private rooms for children or anyone else for that matter. The teenage son of a medieval uh, baron didn't have a private room on the second floor of the castle uh, with Pictures of Richard the Lionheart and King Arthur on their wall, right? 
Not a locked door with his parents unable to open. He slept along other side, uh, alongside other children in the large hall that would have been built. And think about the evolution of our cities in this way. In the 1930s, there was this great need and dependence that became obvious, right? The, the Great Depression. And people were in need and they were reaching out for help. And everyone kind of had to come together. Some of you know exactly what that was like. You lived through that or you've heard stories from your parents who lived through that. It shaped the culture, that generation, in a major way. But as life emerged after World War II, the suburban sprawl happened, and the architecture of cities began to change as well. All of a sudden, you had a whole profession of city planning that came into vogue in the suburbs, right? And along with that, there were building codes, and there were fire districts, and there were acceptable standards for everything from gas and electric lines to street widths. And over the years, the architecture of homes began to leave off an important architectural piece that was there prior to all this. It was the front porch. The front porch. All of a sudden, it wasn't the front porch. Where do we build our porches after that? The back porch with a rear entry garage where you don't even have to really see your neighbors when you drive in, right? And that's shaped and changed our neighborhoods, hasn't it? so much harder for us to connect with our neighbors than when I think about the front porch that my grandparents had in Abilene. I think about those times we spent on that front porch and the people who would pass by. and You get to know your neighbors, but we've kind of stepped away from that in our culture to a much more individualized, kind of protective unit when it comes to the house. With privacy in the backyard, kind of lock the door to make sure everything's safe, not to mention the gated communities that take this even another step. And then there's this awkward dilemma that we don't even know is awkward because we didn't grow up with front porches, many of us. There's that awkward interaction where a neighbor comes to your door or a solicitor, you're not sure which, and you open the door, or some of you, let's be honest, you look through your Ring doorbell app, right, and try to find out who's there. And and when you open that door, there's this awkwardness of, well, is this somebody that I can invite into the house? Or is this someone that I invite out on the lawn to have a conversation? Or do I do that awkward one step, one foot in, one foot out, kind of, what are you doing here type thing? Again, this is the norm. It's not strange to us, but there's a decision we have to make with people who come to our door. We're a very private culture. And and years ago, you would have that conversation on a front porch. Or maybe you'd invite them in because it was a much more receiving and hospitable culture. But you can see how houses have changed. Cultures have changed. Neighborhoods have changed. And all of this, there's nothing wrong about it, but we have to notice these differences in our culture that lead us to a very private, individual culture. So the removal of the front porch was an architectural decision for our culture to opt for privacy. And gradually the house became this kind of isolated, introverted, fortress-like situation in our lives. And what we were sorely lacking in was what social scientists call third spaces. Some of you may be familiar with this. The first two spaces in our lives are the space of home and the space of the workplace. And that's where a lot of us spend most of our time, right? But There are these places that are called third spaces. The front porch used to be that in a way, but now Starbucks has capitalized on this, right? Because the reality is you go for the cup of coffee, but you're also buying an experience when you go there. Some of you probably got that unicorn frappuccino and they ran out, I noticed, this morning at Starbucks. Ridiculous. But but, but I'm I'm seeing Starbucks and I'm thinking, why do we pay what we pay for that? Well, the reason we do is because we don't have the third space we used to have to engage with people. Waters Creek has done the same thing, other developments like it, right? They're creating space for people who no longer invite people in their home as often to entertain people in a third kind of safe, distant space. And if, if that goes well, then maybe there might be an invitation into the home. This is the genius of places that are actually capitalizing and making incredible amounts of money because our culture has changed. But this individualism, 
has left us more lonely and isolated than ever before. And social media and text messaging is no replacement for the relationships that can only fully be built face-to-face across tables. Again, we're the most globally connected people on the planet and the loneliest in the history of the world. And our loneliness is killing us. Literally, it's killing us. The Surgeon General of the United States over the last few years, Vivek Murthy, has been giving a, a talks, letting us know what the greatest health crisis is of the 21st century right now. He says it's not cancer, it's not heart disease, it's not obesity, it is isolation. And study after study is showing us the dangers and risks of loneliness and isolation. A 2015 study by, the, by BYU using data from 3.5 million people collected over 35 years found that those who fall into the categories of loneliness, isolation, or even simply living on their own, uh, see their risk of premature death rise uh, 26 to 32%. Harvard researcher Robert Putnam notes that if you belong to no groups and you just decide to enter into one significant community, you cut your risk of death over the next year in half, 50%. Listen to this study, Alameda County study by Harvard social scientists tracked the lives of 7,000 people over nine years. And researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong social connections. So people who have bad health habits, such as smoking or poor eating habits or obesity or, or alcohol use, but have strong social ties, lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits, but lived isolated. In other words, better to eat Twinkies in community than to eat broccoli alone. And for some of you, that's all you'll remember from this sermon. At least the kids aren't in here. Now, we we need social scientists to remind us of this, but the Bible's been telling us this reality from the very beginning, hasn't it? In fact, in Genesis, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, for For a chapter and a half, God has been saying over and over again, I created the world and he calls it good, right? It's this rhythm of creation. He creates one day, he steps back, he looks, he calls it good. He does it again and again. The first time God says something isn't good happens in Genesis 2.18. Listen to these words. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. The first time that God says it's not good, the first critique that God makes of his creation are humans who are isolated and lonely without relationships. But what does it take for us to get serious about community? Not Genesis 2, it takes a Harvard study. See, science is just picking up on the reality that Scripture is trying to have been telling us all along. We're made for community. We're made for relationship. It doesn't go well when we're alone. There are risks. It's actually killing us. And so many of us are, are so busy, we don't know how we would create more relationship than what we have right now. But this is what we were made for. We were made to be in relationship. Now, the early church understood something that we often don't understand. And they were forced to this understanding because they were facing a a great threat. There was persecution that was breaking out in those early centuries. And in the early church, in the story of Acts, what we read about is about this early church. And what are they doing every single day? They gather in each other's homes every day. How strange would that be if we started gathering in each other's homes every day? Like, we'd be like, we just don't do that anymore, right? The early church saw this. They met in the temple courts once a week. They they met daily in each other's homes. They're breaking bread. They're, they're going through teaching. There's this sense of brotherhood, sisterhood, of community that's happening that just doesn't happen in our world in the same way. 
in the first three centuries of the church's existence, they depended on one another for everything. They met with each other all the time. They were bonded together through difficulties. And history tells us this is the, the truth of things. It's not just the early church. Anytime a community goes through a difficult season, people come together in a way that they don't in times of ease. For instance, during the Battle of Britain, Researchers have studied those who were in Britain at that time, in London, as the Blitzkrieg was happening, and and all these bombs were happening night after night. And the people, the Londoners who talk about that experience, what they were worried about was the morale of this country is going to go down, the country is going to not be able to withstand this. But what they found on the other side was these people were actually more resilient after the war than they were before. Because there's this sense of threat and danger, and you're wondering, am I going to be the one today that dies? But when you have that near miss, you feel more invincible than you were the day before. God has you there for a purpose, and you realize it. So Londoners actually would, would lament that things were never the same after in terms of community than they were in the midst of it. Because there's a bonding together, there's a coming together that doesn't happen when times are easy. Same is true for soldiers coming back from war. Studies at, study after study tells us that's a there's no experience like being on the battlefield with people who are having your back in the trenches. There's a sense of community. There's a mission. There's a purpose. Every day you're getting up and you know what you're going to do. And over and over again they talk about that transition home is one of the most difficult transitions because you don't have the brotherhood that you had on the field. You don't have the sisterhood you have on the field. You don't have the sense of mission and purpose and community and doing it every single day together. Nothing quite equals that experience. And I'm not saying those aren't hard moments. It's saying these are hard moments, and the hard moments are what bond us together to see the need for one another. But when you live in ease of suburban culture, it's easy to just isolate yourself in your home, keep accumulating wealth and thinking that's it. And what Solomon says is that's not where it's found. Life's not found in accumulating wealth to yourself. It's, it's in bonding together, of seeing the need others have, of expressing your own need. And here's my question, church. What if the church could recover that? What if in the midst of a culture of isolation where everyone seems to be on their own and, and you've got people that are longing for community, what if we decided that in this generation, in this time, we're going to be a community that stands for something? This is what millennials are looking for. And it's not just millennials, is it? We're looking to exist for a purpose that's bigger than just our own lives. And we're looking to do it with a community together. And they're all over this country. I see people who make decisions. And most of those decisions are made around what's going to benefit us most economically. If there's a job that's somewhere else and it takes me away from family or away from deep friendships, we'll take that job almost every time because economics is going to win out. But what about a church that decided, no, my relationships and my connecting point group are too strong to move away from that. There's no amount of money that could actually make up for the benefit that I have in this group. And if you don't have that group right now, we've got to move into and find, right? What would it look like to find and make our decisions as a as a community of God around the people of God, and to realize that the mission of God is calling us forth is the greatest mission the world has. This could be one of the most compelling things to a generation that is isolated, disconnected, doesn't feel like they have anything more to live for than economics. It would be a church that would band together and would say, you know what? We've got a mission that's bigger than anything else out there. We're going to bond together and be together more than just Sunday mornings and maybe an occasional Wednesday night. What would it look like to be doing life together in a way that we get to the very heart of what we're missing. We are isolated. We are lonely. This epidemic's true among our seniors, and we've got an opportunity next door with Christian Care Center to step in. In fact, later this week, if you're one of those who's one of our seniors, we invite you to come. There's a Friday luncheon that happens every month. And this coming Friday at noon, there's going to be a, 
a group from Lovejoy that's going to come and sing as entertainment. They'd love to have you there and to find the group that's, that's growing of our seniors. This happens in our connecting point group. Some of you haven't found that yet. We would love to find a way to connect you into our small groups here at Greenville Oaks. Come find me. Keith Maloney would love to talk with you about finding a place in, in community because this is not where that kind of sense of community is going to happen. I love that we celebrate. The early church came to the temple courts you know, once a week. It's great that we're able to celebrate together. The early church didn't have that because persecution was rampant. They couldn't gather in a group like, this is great, but, but this isn't enough. Growth is going to happen. Relationships going to happen around tables, around living rooms. Maybe third spaces if you need to start there. I want to challenge us as a church. What, what could be, what would be the opportunity, what would be the draw to people if they saw a community that was so winsome, so connected with one another, so on mission? You wouldn't want to give it up. And I think that's the call of Scripture. I think that's what God is calling us to. So over the next few weeks, what I want to do, I want to challenge us to this kind of community, this dependence on one another. There are lots of things that isolate us. One of those is just the living situation we're in. We're in a situation in our culture that's very isolated. But there's other things that isolate us. I want to, I want to talk about that over the next few weeks. And then we're going to talk about the importance of community and raising children. We have our family dedication service once a year. That's coming up in a few weeks. And that's an opportunity for us to say it takes a village to raise kids. We're going to commit to one another to see them raised to, to, to call Jesus Lord. And then the next week we're going to tell the stories on Senior Sunday about these seniors who are about to go to college and they're about to walk into a new isolating period and how they're going to connect again. But, but who has it been in their lives that's connected them and brought them into, into dependence on adults in their lives? That's what we want for our kids. It's great to have family nearby. We love that about living here in Dallas. Holly and I have our families nearby. Not everyone does, but I want to, like, we want this church family to be more significant than even our own family. Isn't that what Jesus said? Who's, who's my brother, sister, mother? It's the one who does the will of my Father. It's the primary community for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And, and a lot of us just don't know what that looks like. So We're going to have this conversation, and, and this fall we've got more opportunities to step into groups and in new ways we're excited to tell you about. But, but I, I want to tell you, I think this is the mission of the church, and I think this is what we're missing from what Acts was experiencing, was a sense of community, a daily in each other's homes and in each other's lives. Right now, it seems like just too much to add to the schedule. It's like too much because we're so busy. But to experience it, I'm telling you, it'll change your life. Let's close with a word of prayer as we end our time today. Father, we thank you for the truth of your scripture and the way that you show us that it is not good for us to be alone. It's the truth that Solomon shares with us. It's the truth that Jesus lives out in his own life, God, with his 12. He does it in community, not just with the crowds who are there. God, some of us have found that community. We found people that we're doing life with that have the same priorities we have that are trying to further your kingdom through your mission, God, on earth. And God, I pray more and more we would find more ways to connect with one another, to find relationships that are life-changing relationships that, that lead us away from isolation and into a greater calling together. Help us to see those in our community, God, who are, who are more isolated than ever and would jump at the chance to hear about a church family that would invite them into relationship, God. Help us to be a hospitable place for all who enter these doors. God, I thank you for this calling and how you've designed us and how you work this together. You're the body of Christ, God, it's a mess a lot of the times, and, and I see it firsthand, but I see a lot of the good too, God. To the amazing times I'm at the hospital and other families seem to have no one there, and yet Here's a small group, a connecting point around others, God. 
And, and I'm, I'm excited about what could be if we would step into the reality you're calling us into, if you'd help us to see the need we have for community and relationship. God, I pray for each one in this room that through these next few weeks, they, they take the next step, whatever that looks like, God. Whether that's a conversation with a close friend that they need to formalize and make a, a more regular meeting with, whether that's a connecting point group they step into, whether that's uh, maybe a healthier step in their marriage or with a close friend, God, that you would pour into, into their lives. God, I pray this week we would see the opportunities we have for relationship and we would walk through those doors. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.